0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening.
2: Later on.
0: From Blue Velvet to One Tree Hill, scores of movies and TV shows have been filmed in and around Wilmington, North Carolina. Perhaps the best known is Dawson's Creek, the popular late 90s coming-of-age drama series. While the show tried to tackle progressive storylines, its stark lack of diversity made Dawson's Creek frequently cited as the whitest show ever. Nearly two decades after Dawson's Creek went off the air, tourists still come to Wilmington in search of the show's landmarks. But Wilmington has a more difficult, less visible side to its history politically as well as culturally, going back to the 1700s. Long before North Carolina became one of America's original 13 colonies, there were thriving indigenous communities throughout the region. Remnants of those communities still exist, including Lumbee and Tuscarora. There was also a time when Wilmington's most famous musician was a man of color, Frank Johnson, one of the biggest stars in American music in the years before the Civil War. During Reconstruction after the Civil War, Wilmington was an unusually progressive, forward-thinking town. In contrast to the state of things elsewhere in the South, Wilmington elected a racially diverse local government led by both whites and freed black people. That came to an abrupt end in 1898 with a white supremacist coup, a bloody rampage that left numerous people of color dead and black-owned businesses destroyed. Those the mob didn't kill, they chased out of town. That left Wilmington with a mostly white population, an all-white local government, and a whitewashed version of the city's history in which black people's contributions were erased from the official story. This might seem like ancient history, but it's not. Wilmington's most famous native-born musician is probably Charlie Daniels, the country music star who died in the summer of 2020. Daniels was born in 1936 less than four decades after that 1898 uprising. The real story of the 1898 coup is finally coming to light in recent years, thanks to works like the 2020 Pulitzer-winning book Wilmington's Lie, but it's still not widely known. A town that keeps its secrets, even as they're hidden in plain sight, this is Wilmington. From the bluegrass situation and come here, North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, Exploring the history and music of North Carolina through the people who made it. I'm David Minconi, and this is Wilmington. What came to be the port city of Wilmington formed in the 1730s, where the Cape Fear River meets the Atlantic Ocean. Before colonization, the area's population was largely made up of indigenous people, including the Lumbee tribe, centered around what is now the town of Lumberton, to the west of Wilmington. They remain in the area to this day, many of them still playing music. Here's Charlie Lowry, an indigenous singer-songwriter from Pembroke, who belongs to the Lumbee and Tuscarora tribes.
1: I think the fact that we live in a settler colonizer state I and mean, North Carolina has done a number on our music and the culture of our music there were many years that our people couldn't even practice their own ceremonies couldn't wear our feathers we couldn't speak our languages if we were caught doing so we were killed on side or imprisoned the ones of us that that remained and Now we have uh, our younger generations that are revitalizing the language. And now we're starting to, like our younger generation of singers and songwriters are starting to write more songs using that traditional language. We're living in a period of, I think, a renaissance in that we're bringing it back. It's very important to me to teach our next generation personally. Our people are so musically inclined here in this region. And I think it's important to teach them that yes, it's okay for you to listen to rap, it's okay for you to listen to country, gospel, but we still, we have that blood in us. It's our blood, it's our bloodlines, it's part of who we are, it's part of what makes us unique as Native people.
0: And Lakota John, an indigenous blues musician originally from Robeson County. I think the legacy
2: connects with Blues music through native uh, through a native lens, I should say. One of the connections that I tie to native music and and blues are uh, unfortunately and fortunately some of the struggles, the oppression that a lot of our African and white brothers and sisters just shared. There was a lot of this thing during this era that we all shared in common, just due to our environment. I would say more so that not only we were influenced as Native people by blues, but uh, just the culture in general. It's a really interesting thing, and it's layered. It's a layered type of, I guess, idea from blues music and Natives, the African community and blues. And there are so many uh, correlations and so woven uh, together. There's just no way that we couldn't be influenced by it.
0: Another culture that developed in the area was that of the Gullah Geechee, who were enslaved and primarily brought from West Africa to the southeastern United States, as far south as Florida. The region is known as the Gullah Geechee Corridor, now a national heritage area. As the town of Wilmington grew before, during, and after the Civil War, it became North Carolina's main economic engine for commerce. The music prevailing back then was a mixture of old-time folk, pre-blues and pre-jazz, similar to what was coming together across the entire South. There has been some research and documentation of 19th century Wilmington music, but not enough, in part because of the 1898 massacre and resulting whitewashing of the region's history. John J. Sullivan is a writer and historian who lives in Wilmington and has written extensively about the city's music and history for The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine. Thanks in large part to Sullivan's work, many of the stories of Wilmington's past have not been entirely lost. I've been living
3: here in Wilmington for a while now. I always want to know more about the place where I am. So I started poking around to see if I could push any of the research forward a little bit, if there were any um, any cracks, any um, avenues that hadn't been pursued, documents that had been missed, that kind of thing. And you find when you do that, that Wilmington is really unusual in the sense that despite having been such a significant place in America, historically, at multiple junctures, there is a lot of primary research left to be done here. There's been some very good foundational work that has to be recognized. The main source being Strength Through Struggle. Uh, that's a book that was written by Beverly Tetterton, our local history guru, in, in a collaboration with Bill Reeves, who was a, a newspaper man here for a long time. And that, it, it puzzled me for, for years, how many places were left to be explored Historically. You would think that a colonial city, everything would have been picked over to a great extent. But here, as we were working, we kept running into documents and manuscripts and things that hadn't been woven into the scholarship yet. And that's always really exciting. But at the same time, it was a surprise. And it took me a while to to realize the extent to which the 1898 massacre really cast a pall or or a veil over huge areas of the Black history here in the sense that it was a dark subject. It was always going to be a dark subject. And and even the history of Wilmington, the historical writing about Wilmington, reflects that. There really is no definitive history of Wilmington. But as I say, it took me a while to, to, to realize that this was the 1898 effect at work and that a lot of this history had been slumbering and simmering for a long time and that when you really go at the history of the city with a musical mindset and a black historical mindset you very quickly encounter things that just really spin your whole idea of of american history and early black music your ideas about those things
0: In the mid-19th century, one notable player who emerged was a black musician named Frank Johnson. Born into slavery, he was a fiddler who played dance music for society functions. He did it well enough to earn freedom for himself and his family. And despite Johnson's celebrity status during his time, little to no research on him survived to the present until John J. Sullivan began to dig. Here is Rhiannon Giddens.
4: John really put Frank Johnson front and center with his research that he did for the New Yorker article for me. And so... Um, I always like to center it. I center him in the research because he put a lot of pieces together. And it was like after the article came out, it was like all of a sudden everybody knew who Frank Johnson was. And I was like, that's so funny how fast it happens, you know?
3: The obscurity of Frank Johnson is one of the most interesting things about him in the sense that when you go to the grid of musical importance and musical obscurity, he's so far out. And what I mean by that specifically is that he fell into such obscurity in the 20th century and then in the 21st century that even experts on early Black music had never heard of him.
0: Sullivan has uncovered enough material on Frank Johnson to declare him among the most significant Black artists in American music history, even though he is almost completely unknown by now.
3: Nothing had been written about him except one article in our state magazine here. That is mainly a a reproduction of a couple of the early newspaper accounts. And it's full of a lot of errors, but it deserves to be recognized as the first person to kind of sit up and and, and be like, wow, this Frank Johnson's an interesting character. And so I had that experience on steroids partly because of these newspaper databases that are available now and the way you can suck needles out of the haystack with a giant magnet little search terms and and with a figure like frank johnson that makes a, a big difference because he's constantly being mentioned in small town newspapers and you can put together a constellation of his you know the geographic sphere he moved in and who was hearing his music and once you start doing that It just exploded when I was doing it, and I've never had a subject do that. But after about a year, I thought, my God, there is nobody like this guy. This is the first rock star. He's a really important
4: character in that he was an enslaved fiddler, and he bought himself out of slavery with his fiddle and his family and created this band and was so famous and so influential that Instead of like calling it string band music or whatever, they called it Frank Johnson, old Frank Johnson music. And it's just like to be that influential as a black man during that time in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, it's just so impressive
3: to me. He has a kind of musical celebrity that really didn't exist as a category for his time. And he's the dominant figure in that world.
0: Frank Johnson's career eventually fell on hard times around the Civil War but he was still prominent enough for news of his death to be reported across the country. His funeral in Wilmington also drew thousands. He
3: died in 1872, so that last quarter of the 19th century, there was a lot of interesting stuff remembering him, even in other cities, his legend was still alive. And this thing happens after his death. Actually, it starts before that because it starts right after the Civil War. and and goes up to the end of the 19th century. But you have people complaining about having to dance and march or whatever to black bands. They don't like it anymore. There's a certain kind of attention a musician gets in a dance social scenario that has nothing to do with color and you can't escape it. The power that they'd once held over these people was no longer as trustworthy and they just did not like the social dynamic so you start to see these articles appearing that say why do we have to do this why can't we have good white bands surely there are enough white musicians and that seems to happen for a while but it happens for a very short while and you can tell that people are just you know like sorry fuck this experiment we need the real musicians back and and that did happen. It did come around, but one of the most interesting little items I came across in in all of that reading was a piece from later in the century. They were having a grand Confederate reunion in New Orleans, and Confederate veterans were coming from all over to gather and they were getting together in their old infantry regiments and having these parades and there had been a movement from within whatever body was organizing this thing to ban the presence of black bands and black musicians they wanted white musicians and this person in north carolina i think he may have been in raleigh even writes this letter lamenting protesting this move and um arguing that black musicians had given so much pleasure to people over 200 years and they were such an important part of social life in north carolina and they they deserved that honor and they had they had played during the war you know because frank johnson played picnics and things that were to recruit confederate soldiers it's really weird we really have to let go of so many expectations and preconceptions when we enter that world. Once he's done saying this uh, about how black bands should be allowed, he says, surely many of you remember old Frank Johnson. And he gives this beautiful description of him and how beloved he was and how nobody scrupled to dance to his music and and nobody had a problem with that back in the day. There are even scenes of young men going to his a hotel room after a gig to have oysters and wine or whatever, and you can tell it's the same group that today would like try to get backstage at a Radiohead show or something.
0: And yet Johnson quickly slipped into an obscurity that lasts to this day, in part because he predated recordings.
3: I wish I had a time machine. I think we would understand a lot more about the development of black music over the course of the 19th century in the South. It would solve certain mysteries about where some things came from. All we have to go on are are written descriptions and we have, you know, what you might call set lists. People who went to one of his concerts and wrote down every song he played. And we know that those were mainly traditional fiddle tunes. He did compose sometimes. But all we have to go on to say what it sounded like is all the different things people said about it, all of the writing about it. It can be hard to squeeze sound out of written description. But if you really work and if you have a hundred passages that you can mash together, thread together, whatever it is, you can get close. But in this case, you're getting close to a chaos because there's almost no style from that time that he isn't playing. He's playing the fiddle for, you know, what now we would call square dances. And he's calling the numbers. And then he has this this brass band that is fairly large that includes his sons, his children, and and other musicians. Sometimes he's playing the traditional minstrel setup, fiddle, banjo, guitar, bones. Sometimes he's playing mashups of those combinations. That, to me, was maybe most interesting, the idea of the minstrel setup with the brass. Jazz is going to happen almost inevitably in that scenario i wish we knew more about what it sounded like as you say but it was a tradition that went back well before the civil war and it lasted up to the point that it hit modernity it came up against
0: modernity johnson is not alone among black wilmington musicians who were notable yet forgotten sullivan also cites the heath brothers as foundational jazz figures who played with giants like Thelonious monk and john coltrane but have been largely erased from history.
3: The Wilmington Effect, where you're always finding these little oddities in the way the stories get told that end up erasing connections and history. And this is a good example of that. If you read any Wikipedia-type thing about the Heath brothers, it'll say, Percy was born here, but then the family left when he was one year old or two years old or something, and they went to Philadelphia, and then that's it. From there, it becomes a Philadelphia story. But what is really the case is that they were very much mixed up in and part of the, the culture of the city and the musical culture of the city. At least two of them went to Williston, the, the historic black school here, which was a high school at that time. They played in the marching band and there were excellent music instructors there, including a the man who'd played with Count Basie. So they learned to read music there and formed their first jazz band here in Wilmington, the Rhythm Lads. So it's like you would just never hear that. You would never hear Wilmington mentioned in the context of a jazz conversation, but then you realize that the Heath brothers were really a product of this place and they were foundational to modern jazz. But by this little wrinkle of some kind, that just gets out of the story.
0: Part of that goes back to 1898, but if Sullivan and and Goodens have their way, these stories will finally be brought to the forefront. The two are currently collaborating on a musical about the events of 1898, which will be steeped in the music and characters of the time.
4: So the Wilmington project is, it's an as of yet undetermined creative piece that I'm wanting to build around the what happened in Wilmington in 1898, which was the a massacre, which was a coup, which is the only one on American soil and it's something that had enormous consequence for Wilmington, but also what was happening all across the South and in other parts of the U.S. in terms of race relations and how the prosperity of black communities was being dismantled violently by uh, white supremacists. So it's a really important piece.
3: Rhiannon and I are both really interested in 1898 and the massacre and coup d'etat that happened here in Wilmington. and. She came to it music from her interest in, in early Black music and in, in needing American history and Black history into her songwriting the way she does, weaving it in. That was her approach to the subject and then I was coming at it historically. I'm a research nerd. He fits into the story of 1898 in a very interesting way in a meaningful way, because he's part of this tradition of black musicianship that's moving back and forth between the black and white worlds. So he's playing plantation balls and he's playing democratic, which at that time was was to say white supremacist political rallies. And he makes his living that way. He's the favorite musician of well-to-do white people in general, for that matter, in this part of North Carolina. But he's also a huge figure in the Black community. And like so many musicians in in the history of American music, he's oscillating between the two worlds. And, And we don't know in what way the music he played for Black audiences was different. We can only count on the fact that it would have been different after the war when his prospects were failing and he was down on his luck he condescended to play for white audiences so he's going into cracker country he's going where the poor whites are and he's playing this music that he that has evolved in mainly in a black context and in an interracial one as a kind of frequency back and forth between the black and white musical worlds. It's Elvis. It's the whole love and theft thing. It's the whole minstrel vaudeville tradition that is in love with black culture and at the same time is always distorting it in a grotesque, racist way. And it's all happening there with Frank Johnson.
0: Sullivan drew many of these connections in a 2019 piece in the New Yorker magazine, which linked the history of 1898 and Frank Johnson with Giddens. She came to the story from one of her longtime musical mentors, the late fiddler Joe Thompson, who taught her and the Carolina Chocolate Drops much of the old time canon in their early years. Joe Thompson, my
4: my own mentor, is in a direct kind of oral tradition line from Frank Johnson. And it's just like within African American history, it's so rare to have a name. You know, we don't have a face, but we have a name. We have information and to be connected to that in a in an oral tradition way it's just so rare so I find that whole thing miraculous and I'm grateful for it every day that research was done and he did his thing which is <laughs> he, he sniffed around and he found that out and he made the connections and, and it's just really incredible because now people do know about Frank Johnson and if you know about him then you have a little bit more of an idea of how important black string band music was and how massively un unreported and unknown today these people were and how much an indelible part
0: of how American music came to be they are. In the latter half of the 20th century, Wilmington was also an epicenter for the budding genre of beach music, a style of R&B dance music that is still around today with largely white audiences. Later, the town became a production hub for film and television as an alternative to pricier facilities in Los Angeles and New York. From multiple David Lynch movies to Andy Griffith's Matlock to Kevin Williamson's teen soaps like Dawson's Creek and One Tree Hill, production remains a central part of Wilmington's local economy. It also irrevocably links the image and idea of the city to whiteness in popular culture.
3: It's not hard to find you know, great musicians in any part of America, or at least it's possible to find them and, and to find musicians who are un- undeservedly obscure, who deserve to be remembered and are not. That happens all the time. But the strange thing about Wilmington is that it's all of these seminal figures. Katerina Yarber, the first Black woman to sing on Broadway. Willis Richardson, the first Black playwright ever to have a play produced on Broadway. Just over and over. And at a certain point you realize, okay, there's a pattern here. This isn't happening accidentally. Something has caused us not to look into our
0: musical history very closely the work of bringing wilmington's true past into the open good as well as bad will continue and that's a wrap for this first season of carolina calling carolina calling is a production of the bluegrass situation and come here north carolina the show is written by shelby williamson amy writenauer jacobs and me david minconi produced by shelby williamson edited by chris jacobs and associate editor jenna Warnicky. Special thanks to executive producer Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs at The Bluegrass Situation and Billy Maupin with Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. Big shout out to this week's guests, John J. Sullivan, Rhiannon Giddens, Charlie Lowry, and Lakota John. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots Music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Minkoni. Thanks for listening.